Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Andrew Wilson, on how understanding a number of major events in 1776 helps us understand who we are today. I hope that it will enable people to make connections between things that are happening to them and much deeper roots and causes that might help them make sense of why those changes are what they are, which will help them in their understanding of why their workplace is what it is, or why their neighbors say the things they do, or why their kids are wrestling with the things they are. Andrew Wilson, next. Looking around at the social changes in our society, it may seem like there's never been a more tumultuous period in history. Dr. Andrew Wilson says there has. In fact, he's drawing our attention to one astonishing year, 1776. In that year, he says seven major developments emerged which had decisive influence then, and the effects are still with us today. Dr. Andrew Wilson pastors King's Church in London, and he's author of the new book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the post-Christian West. Dr. Wilson, how did you first realize the significance of 1776? Yeah, so I was reading a book about six or seven years ago on holiday in France that made the point that the wealth of nation, uh, the, the great economics, seminal book of economics by Adam Smith, and the invention of James Watt's steam engine happened in the same weekend uh, in 1776. And I thought, wow, that's two seismic events for modern industrial and economic history that had took place in the same year as obviously I knew enough about 1776 to know that it was also a pretty seismic event in British and American and political history. And I thought, wow, this is really formative events for three major developments in our modern world, democracy, industrialization, and economics. And that's kind of sparked a thought. And I started digging and then discovered a whole lot of other things, which although I would broadly, in fact, I've studied some of them at university and the enlightenment and philosophy of religion, but I'd never really joined it all together into one historical narrative of, of one year. And so that was happening. And the other thing that was happening was I was reading the work of uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and through him got into Joseph Henrich and some of his ideas. But this this great acronym, which some of listeners will, may have come across, of weird, the, the modern world is Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, spelling weird. And I... I don't know how it hit me, but somewhere the two ideas collided and I thought, I wonder if you could tell the story of the post-Christian West through the lens of that acronym using this year as a window into it. And obviously I'm a, I'm a pastor, that's my day job. I, I, I preach, I teach, I try and disciple people into truth and helping people think through how to live in this cultural moment and talk to unbelievers about the gospel. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way of doing that through a book that tells the story of where we are, gives a sort of genealogy of our cultural moment, but also orients us in how the church responded to those particular challenges at the time. So that was the genesis of it. And it sort of evolved. And I spent two or three years trying to write it and see if it would work. And in the end, hopefully it, it has. And if not, <laughs> it's my problem now. <laughs> well, it's published, so so obviously it's it's out there and it, and it has a lot of credibility. For people, I, I think we're so fixated on the present, on the modern day, on what's happening around us, what's in the media, what's, you know, what's happening politically or whatever. Why is it important to look back to the past? In this case, 1776, as fascinating as this is, why is it important to remember these things? I think it, we're all storytelling creatures, and I think we all have a sense of how we got here, even if that sense is a little 
fuzzy or a, a little bit inaccurate in certain ways. And, and one of the dangers of not knowing the past at all is you effectively cede control of the way you understand your own cultural moment and the way to respond appropriately to it to people who tell that narrative more noisily or more convincingly than you. So if you don't have a, a plausible historical narrative of why the world is as it is, the church is as it is, one of the things you can, you can just descend into fear. You can say, I just don't understand what's going on. It's all coming out of nowhere. Everything seems to catch you out. Everything's surprising or unsettling. And you also, as I say, can sort of, you can see the ground to those who would perhaps want to tell a very different story of how the world is m maturing beyond Christianity, which in the period I'm writing about in this book is quite a big part of the story because that's what the Enlightenment was, really. It was instead of saying we have now moved beyond the Middle Ages into Protestantism, people began to say, no, we've moved beyond Christianity into Enlightenment and sort of post-Christianity and, and uh, all sorts of norms which we now take for granted. And if you don't have a historical narrative that grounds you, that says, well, hang on a second, these bits, that, that's kind of true here, but it's definitely not true there, then you end up really being at the mercy of whoever's telling that story most loudly or prominently in your culture or in your community or whatever. So I think having a historical narrative is very important because otherwise we will all operate with one. It just won't be a very good one. And, of course, Scripture tells us, I think, in Old and New Testaments about the importance of remembering. And if you could touch on that as well as a little bit about what novelist, British novelist George Orwell said as well. I mean, the Psalms are continually doing this. They're saying you've got to remember, you know, even, you know, I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember you and what you've done for me. Uh, I bless the Lord of my soul and forget not all his benefits who does these things but that sense of being a memory a people of memory even Jesus in the last supper on the you know the night's betrayed said do this in remembrance like, I need you to remember the things God has done and not to allow amnesia to seep in and allow the enemy the enemies of God to reformulate that story in a way that omits the importance of much of the Psalms are of course doing that they're just retelling Israel's story Deuteronomy 32 the the Son of Moses and so on, just you've got to remember your story. So there's that, but I also think, as, as you mentioned Orwell, that there's a contemporary, particularly actually in the years just after the Second World War, where a lot of prominent writers in the West are, a lot of the, much of the great novels of this period, and I would say in many ways any period, do have a very strong focus on memory and on the need to avoid the destruction of our recent past, both in communist and fascist varieties, that had attempted to sort of stamp out what really happened and reframe everything in through the lens of propaganda or using language to try and re rename everything. And Orwell was very was a particularly powerful example because both his really famous novels, Animal Farm in 1984, have a strong sense that the, the people in power are trying to wipe out what really happened and then retell the story with themselves as the combination of the narrative. And Orwell makes this uh, compelling point in uh, when he says that those who control the present control the past can get to dictate what people believe and then those who control the past control the future because if you can control someone's historical narrative you can control the kinds of things they do now and will continue to do into the future and i think it's particularly pertinent from a man like that who had recently seen what happens when the west loses its sense of narrative and cohesiveness in its own historical stories so yeah i i find that in some ways, this sort of prophet of the 20th century and the psalmist of the 9th or 10th centuries BC are actually telling a very similar story about the importance of history and memory in orienting those of us who 
by all of us, really, but particularly Christians, in, in a historical story that makes sense of where we are. Well, it's interesting. In, in your book, Remaking the World, and just uh, just a couple of moments ago, you used the word amnesia. You, you say something to the effect that amnesia is baked into our memories, and, and there are consequences to that. What, 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 what do you mean amnesia is, is baked into our into Well, our I, what I mean is, there is, I think, in the modern world, amnesia is is almost the way that we are formed by the culture. Mm. So, I mean, even just to take this, you and I are talking from thousands of miles away from each other in a, an electronic medium that as soon as I press a button on here, if I was to accidentally press a button, you'd disappear and I would crack on with doing whatever else I'm doing and you talk to someone else. And it's, it's in formats where even social media is continually trying to draw new things to our attention. Some people, they theorize, don't they, you know, that these you know, phones or whatever are designed that they're not going to kind of work like they do now in three or five years and and we furniture homes developments uh economic produce the throughput the speed of travel of everything that lots and lots of things about our world are so fast and instantaneous that they are pretty much designed to make us forgetful of what's just happened and embrace the new because people make money out of that and yep. so that's the point i'm trying to make and to say that because the modern world forms us that way it becomes particularly pressing for those of us in a culture where we don't I mean, I'm not sure if you do, but many people don't know the names of their, their great-grandparents. They wouldn't even know their first name. They would be, and these, you think this is un, almost unthinkable in most cultures in history that you would have such a shallow sense of who your family was just 80 or 90 years ago. It's very common in our day, and the same is true of news and so on. So that's what I'm trying to, to help us with, okay. I think, in part with this book, is to orient us in a story that's longer than just, wow, this school goes back to the 1990s or even the 1950s and say, no, actually, we've got to tell a longer, <laughs> richer story than that mm. that gives some proper context to where we are and why. Well, the book is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. What is meant by the West? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> if you look at a globe and you see the countries that are identified as Western, they, they don't look like they're all in the same place at all. It's like Australia, Germany, what do these countries have in common? What I generally use it to mean, and following obviously other historians and interpreters who've done this, is to say that there is something distinctive about the nations and the colonies of the nation that, were, that emerged from Western Christendom, that effectively that the East-West splits in Europe in in really through the Greek-speaking East and the Latin-speaking West, which actually then tracks slightly different, quite different trajectories for the next thousand years um, in what became the, the Byzantine Empire in the East and what became the Latin Christendom in the West, and that actually that Latin Christendom and its New World colonies um, in Hispanic and Anglophone America and in the antipodes are do have something quite distinctive about them and that is generally the same countries people talk about when they talk about the west so it doesn't just mean industrially or technologically sophisticated cultures because japan you know it would not be western by the, by any standard i think mm -hmm. because it's culturally very different it's more a comment about the roots and the historical origins which of course is as i argue in the book a lot very related to its roots in christianity Great. Well, your book is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, and you write about seven transformations or, or even revolutions which occurred in 1776 and how they help us understand our current day. Can you kind of tick off what those seven are? Maybe just with yeah, sure. And yeah, if I couldn't, that would be bad. It's, kind of, it's like the summary of the book. <laughs> really, our, our modern culture is the product of seven interlocking transformations that have taken place in the last, say, 300 years. Globalization, the joining up of the world, the Enlightenment, European Enlightenment, and the moving, effectively moving 
or self-styled moving beyond what the what the church taught or what the state told you into being educated to think for yourselves that's how they framed it industrialization the industrial revolution the massive what i call the great enrichment this sort of massive uptick in economic growth that kicked in in the late 18th century and has carried on rising since democracy uh post-christianity and romanticism which is a, a more ideological artistic movement and th those seven features of our modern world those seven shaping influences can all be traced in miniature to things which happened in 1776 so that's the idea of the book uh well actually i did most of the book and then at the end I, what i try and do is talk about how the church can respond but those seven developments to me seem to summarize both the material realities of our modern world and our so our economic realities the technology the maps those sorts of developments but also our ideological and intellectual and theological and philosophical roots which are often a fusion of more like the enlightenment romanticism and christianity and the move beyond christianity uh particularly in in sort of late 18th century europe which is now very much taking you know taking root in much of the west so i think those sort of that collision of the material and the ideological with a bit of political sprinkled in is is a description of those seven forces which i think are the main thing shaping our modern world and so then what i try and do is to tell those seven stories through the lens of 1773 help us understand how they happened and that connection between then and now and as you point out in your book that back then in 1776 as we begin to get a grip and, and you've helped us very quickly to understand some of the seismic changes which were going on there how disorienting it most likely was to people living at that time and then looking to the current time and changes that are happening in very recent years and how disorienting those changes are particularly to those that hold to a to a biblical worldview so there's that yes. gut connection there. Yes, there is. And and I think I mean times of great economic and technological and material change are always and intellectual change are always unsettling for people. But I think, as we were saying earlier, one of the things that can happen when you tell a longer story in which you connect some of the dots is that you give people some sense of power over the story you get you get people to go oh that's related to this and that's that's not just come out of nowhere that wasn't that wasn't created in 2014 out of thin air or whatever it is and i i think i, I would single out the middle years of the last decade have been intense social intellectual and almost moral reconfiguration mm -hmm. in many western countries but say 2014 to 2017 those sorts of that, that kind of period with the echoes still today and i think that when something like that happens, people are often inclined to think it's come out of nowhere. So tracing that story in a longer view. And then, as you say, talking about how when those changes were fermented, Christians responded can help people. They say, oh, this is not actually as totally dramatic and unknown as as we thought. And I would even say that to some degree over the reaction amongst my you know, Christian brothers and sisters in America versus in Europe, because in Europe, those changes have taken 80 years and in the US they seem to have almost taken eight like <laughs> right. the things have happened much quicker in the last few years whereas actually some of those changes have taken place over a longer period in Europe because the big the process of people skepticism of established Christianity and the sector revolution and other things changed far, earlier in many parts of Europe and of course in some parts of the US 
but generally restricted to the coastal cities in a way that much of the nation was not affected as quick. Whereas what's happening now is that a lot of those changes are happening quite in a rush in the US where they've taken longer in Europe. And I think that they all have their roots back in the late 18th century. Of course, I, I would say that because I've been writing about it, but I think they're, they're interestingly connected to many of those changes. Well, in your book, Remaking the World, how 1776 created the post-Christian West, you, as you've explained, given us an overview, a number of political, philosophical, economic, and industrial changes shaped the modern West into a weirder, and you've de- described what you mean by weirder, W-I-E-R-D, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian, and romantic uh, society. And I hope we have some time to ask you about some of those. When you talk about the way the events from 1776 transformed society, what do you mean that it became ex-Christian? So when I say post-Christian, I don't mean that the that the world that everyone in the world used to be Christian and now no one in the world is. That's obviously not true. You and I are talking as Christians, and there would have been many 500 years ago who, to varying degrees, had a lot of doubts of Christianity and probably were functionally living as if they were not believers at all. And some would even be open enough then to say that they weren't. What I mean, though, is that two things: that there there is there is the post or the ex half of the word, and then there's the Christian half of the word. I think that the post there has clearly been a move in the in the modern West, and there was in the late 18th century to move beyond Christian, uh, an explicitly Christian confessional way of thinking about the world, and beginning to try and ground the major convictions of Christianity not in Christianity but in reason, and to act like those are sort of things that we can deduce from the way the world really is, and so. Things like, you know, human rights or belief in even now democratic norms. I, I use the Declaration of Independence as an example, that it was, you know, originally drafted as sacred and undeniable truths, but which then Franklin changed to self-evident truths. And that's part of that move. It's just one example, but quite a famous one of a, a move from saying these things are group grounded in religion to they're grounded in reason. So that's the sort of post-Christian bit. Nowadays, there is no one who is astonished to do, to meet someone who says they're not a Christian and isn't scared of dying. Mm-hmm. But when James Boswell met David Hume in the 1776, he was flabbergasted that Hume was dying without any sense of anxiety, despite not being a Christian. That is a significant change, because obviously for many hundreds of years, people in Europe had just, you could assume Christianity, and that's clearly no longer true. But I also want to say not just that that assumption has gone, but that the world we're in is still very much post-Christian as opposed to post anything else. We're not post-animist. We're not post-Islamic. We're not post-Confucian or post-atheist or communist in that sense. We are very much post-Christian. And so our norms, our institutions, our values are very, very shaped, imprinted with the gospel in all sorts of ways. And that makes society, modern society a fascinating and often quite complicated place because people reject Christianity at times on very Christian grounds. And so in, the, in a sense, you the charge against someone like me who believes the Bible might be you're, you're not you're not compassionate enough, you're not loving enough because you believe these things are sinful. And you say that's a Christian objection to Christianity, which is a very curious development. That's not why people in the ancient world didn't like Christians or didn't like what they were saying, whereas now it is. And that's because the society is both post but also post-Christian. And we've moved beyond Christendom into something that is distinctively got Christian roots and yet is trying to leave them behind. So that's why I use that term. And I think it's a fascinating and important thing for us to consider. And I'm wondering, Dr. Wilson, if you could also uh, highlight uh, perhaps a connection that you make between 1776 and how we've changed uh, in our understanding of identity, since that's such a huge issue right now. 
Yeah, it is. And and so this this would be, I think, the origins of romanticism. And I have a chapter in the book on, on romanticism, as I've said. And I think that the work that some of the sort of, you know, German playwrights and French writers and, and you know, across the board, actually, various things going on, including actually in, in London, in my own city, with this, this what I call the first sexual revolution, um, that there is a lot of changes, particularly as people begin to reflect on what is most truly important about themselves and how they are to understand who they really are. And it's related to developments in art and philosophy. So somebody like Rousseau would be a well-known name uh, in many circles here. But And people like Goethe who, or Herder who would write things about themselves like, I, re I return into myself and I find a world. Or my, the most important thing is to be true to yourself. Well, they're now they're the kinds of things that you see in Disney or Toy Story or something. Yeah. But at the time, they were sort of philosophically quite avant-garde new ideas, which have since trickled in and permeated everywhere. And people began to think that what was really important about themselves was what was within them rather than what was almost given to them by their ancestors or their religion or their nation or tribe. And that's a very important development about who you think you truly are. Rousseau used to, would talk about, uh, he'd use terms like veracité or sincérité de cœur, which means like sort of authenticity, we might say, or truthfulness or living according to the sincerity of your heart, which now people say being authentic or be true to you. And those sorts of developments, although they didn't happen instantaneously, but those sorts of developments over time seep into the way that modern people understand ourselves and think that what's most important about you is what's within you, what what is in your heart and how you live that way. And that, although obviously 1776 doesn't create that on its own, but I think it's a very important milestone in that development that shapes the way that almost all of your neighbours, whatever they say they believe, are nevertheless shaped by, by virtue of being in a culture like ours. Well, the book is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Obviously, people listening to this, both those in, in the U.S. And, and knowing that I'm speaking to you, you're in Great Britain, you're in England, you're near London. have to ask you, the uh, talk about, and, and this is one of these seven transformational events uh, of 1776, the ratification of the Declaration of Independence, how that created or helped create the post-Christian West, the significance of that. Obviously, as a Brit, you have to <laughs> you have to be a bit begrudging here and say you guys were fighting it at the time. But I do think that there is something in there was something enormously important, not just about the document, but I think about the fusion that the document represents between, if I can be as as trite as this, between idealism and pragmatism. That I think there was a there were a lot of pragmatic minded political thinkers in the 18th century, particularly in my country who just didn't have the ideals that the American Declaration expresses. They didn't say, no, everyone's equal. They said, no, 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 we don't really want... If you, if you go down there, you're going to end up with mob rule, it'll be chaos. You need to make sure you keep a degree of hierarchy, monarchy, House of Lords, House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And obviously many, many states retained something like that for a very long time after the Declaration. So there are lots of pragmatic... At the same time, there were also other much more idealistic experiments, particularly in France, where obviously they would say, no, everybody's equal, but in the sense that we are, what's that line in Les Mis, where they say we're going to cut the fat ones down to size, and, and they really did, and they literally chopped people's heads off, obviously, and it, mm -hmm. it burnt out under its own momentum and ended up being replaced by a strongman in Napoleon, and France... France's modern constitution only dates back to the late 1950s because they had so many experiments with, does it work if we do it this way? No, back to an emperor. What about this? America is is so important because it blended the British pragmatism and the French idealism, if I can put it. I mean, that's an overstatement, but that's really what's going on, I think, intellectually. 
and as a result had this very idealistic vision that was nevertheless balanced with an awful lot of pragmatic considerations on checks and balances and so on and so if you like the the tension between Thomas Paine and John Adams in 1776 or between Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton or whatever that tension that sort of I've got a very idealistic vision of humanity being all equal mingled with no but we've got to have checks and balances we've got to have these people checking these people checking these people it's that duality it's that this both of those things at once that makes America so important because what then happens is of course nations all over the world ever since have modeled their own democracy to some degree or other on the American ideal and I think that's what makes this particular declaration and it, and the events it reflects so significant. Well, it, it is interesting, remaking the world, how 1776 created the post-Christian West. I can hear some people thinking, well, what about the Bible? What, what kind of influence did the Bible have? And yet you're talking about how the post-Christian West was shaped, but the Bible was still obviously an extremely influential yeah. and significant document yes. at that time. Yes. And so a lot of what I do in the book is actually try, saying that, try not to be too repetitive about it, but say that a lot of those developments, when they happen in 1776, are themselves the product of profoundly Christian thought or practice over often a very long period. And that that's true of demography and even psychology. It's true of romanticism. It's true of industrial technology. I mean, it's great fun. The chapters on economic growth and industrialization, I talk a lot about how Christianity plays a role, it plays a very significant role in developing things which are essential for the nature of the modern world in all sorts of ways, like Protestantism or literacy or even the idea that you can have something like West, Western Europe as a setting where you have a shared Christian paradigm and even a shared language to do academic scholarship in, Latin, namely Latin at the time. But you also have these divided nation states, which are all squabbling with each other. But they, their shared Christian confession unites them enough to be able to compete with one another, which leads to a great growth in knowledge. Because Protestant people are Protestants, they believe God's spoken in a book. So they read the Bible and they teach people to read and they set up schools and education, which ends up dramatically increasing increasing the literacy rate, which obviously makes developing industrial technology much easier because people are reading and studying science and things. And so all sorts of developments like that, and there are others as well, where you think, well, this has not come out of nowhere in this year. This is actually an outgrowth of deep Christian roots in this culture over a thousand years beforehand and, and longer. So you're absolutely right. I think the Bible is much more important in the shaping of the modern West than the Declaration of Independence is. In many ways, the Declaration of Independence could never have been written as it was were it not for the Bible. And that's also true of Gibbon. And it's true of Hume. And it's true of people who wouldn't even say they were Christians. But the way they wrote and the things they said were birthed out of fundamentally Christian convictions about God, man, the world, and its comprehensibility without which none of those modern developments would have emerged in the way they did. Well, the book is Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. You've given us a tremendous flavor for that. Um, my guest, Dr. Andrew Wilson, he's the author, he's, a te he's the teaching pastor at King's Church London and a columnist for Christianity Today. How do you hope all of this, for those that even hear this conversation, maybe, but hopefully those that will also read the book, how would you like it to perhaps change our thinking and how we live today? I think first and foremost, I actually really want people to, I think it's a great story and I want people to enjoy the story. I think when you write a book, you have to hope that people will, particularly that people will just love the story and go, wow, this is just great. So I hope for that. But at a deeper level, I hope two things. I hope that it will enable people to make connections between things that are happening to them and much deeper roots and causes that might help them make sense of why those changes are what they are, which will help them in their understanding of why their workplace is what it is or the, why their neighbors say the things they do or why their kids are wrestling with the things they are or those sorts of dynamics so that's one thing 
So it has explanatory power. And then the other thing is they want to help equip people with responses to those developments, which we've talked less about in this conversation. But my final two chapters are about that, really. How did the church respond and how what does the church today what can we learn from that response and how do we apply those things today i talk about grace freedom and truth and i and i think but if i just take grace i think understanding how the christian idea of grace is just an incredibly pressing need for the modern world but that the way we articulate it needs to be mindful of the questions modern people are actually asking which might not be how do i get saved by a holy god which it was for the reformers but it might be for instance i don't understand how i can justify my existence or how can how i can define my own identity how, how do i achieve status without it being a, a relentless grind or warrant the privileges i've been given as a privileged person how do i live with those privileges knowing others don't share them and that in all of those questions the christian doctrine of grace is just enormously liberating but we have to understand the question in order to be able to apply the biblical answer to it in a way that people find liberating and joyous. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Andrew Wilson, pastor of King's Church in London and author of the new book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Katie Davis Majors with some practical and biblical help with dealing with anxiety. So many of us are so anxious. So many people I talk to, seems like the world is just kind of increasingly chaotic and uncertain, right? And so how how do we stay as believers? We want to stay just deeply rooted in who Jesus is and in his promises to us and in the promise of eternity. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.